Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and let us see what you would want us to see from these verses in Ezekiel and that your Holy Spirit will lead. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that, that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in, uh, in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, and as the soul, as the soul of the fathers... So also the soul of the son is mine, the soul that sins, shall it shall die. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has he defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has he come near to a menstruous woman, and has not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, and have spoiled none by violence, hath given his spread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, he that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken up any increase, that man where with, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, which executed true judgment between man and man, has walked in my judgments, and has kept my judgments, to deal truly, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. So we're going to stop there, because there's quite a bit just in that little section. And basically... What he's saying is, in this proverb, they're saying, the fathers eat, eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, you know, the fathers sin and the sons are punished. And God says that is not the way that he does things. Um, and even in this day, there's a lot of people who believe that, you know, your children are punished for what you do or the parents are punished for what their kids do. And this is something I've had to deal with at various times with different individuals when parents will take really personal offense when their kids are bad, when they've trained them to be good. And it, they seem to think that somehow it makes them look bad for some reason. And unfortunately, a lot of people will look at them and say, well, you know, how bad were your parents just because they were bad? And the prodigal son is a great example. The prodigal son had a good father, an excellent father, and he went bad and went off and lived in riotous living. And it wasn't the father's fault, especially when the father's representing God. God has many children, you know, people that he cares for and created that go off and do the wrong thing and hopefully will come back. And here he's saying, you're not punished because of your parents. Now, if a father and a mother have their bad examples and living wrong, the chances of a child going wrong are pretty great. But there are always exceptions. There's always that child that looks, sees how bad their parents are and say, I am not going to do that. And they break the cycle. And there are kids who are raised in good godly homes with good godly parents and their kids can go bad. Now, if you look at a family and all their kids are going bad, then you can look at their parents and say, maybe they're not what everybody thinks they are. Because the chances of every kid going bad in that family is probably slim if they're being raised in a righteous home. But this whole chapter is going to be on how you're punished for your own sins. And this is what the world wants to believe, that you know, somehow when I stand before God, I'm going to be able to blame my parents, I'm going to be able to blame society, I'm going to be able to blame somebody other than myself 
for my sins. And you can hear that oftentimes, especially with the more educated they are, they'll feel they have greater excuses of who they are. You talk to people oftentimes and they'll be talking about how it's all somebody else's fault. And that's really what psychology is built on. It's all somebody else's fault that you're the way you are. Psychologists oftentimes, well, let's dig into your past and find out where mom and dad messed you up. There's an element of truth to that, but we're still responsible for our reaction and our acceptance or rejection of what our lifestyle is. For me to have been, let's say, somehow I was raised in an alcoholic home full of drug users and bad you know, thieves and everything, the chances are that I will be like them because that is what I'm used to. But I'm still responsible for my decisions on how I respond to that. And the reason I know that that's true is because I have dealt with some of the people in this town that had very bad parents and grandparents and they're struggling with, I don't want to be like them, but I don't know any better. And you'll see them make decisions that make no sense to us because it's not the world we grew up in or, or dealt with, and yet they're struggling. They don't want to do it, but they don't know any better. And on the flip side, you've got Christians who are raised in a good Christian home, and they're just as responsible if they decide to turn against what their parents say. For everybody at some point in their life has to make a decision, am I going to take my parents' value system and make it mine or am I going to change? Pastors, kids fall into that a lot of times they do for a number of reasons. It may just be rebellion because they're expected to be good. And, a lot of, and this is the damage churches can do to pastors' kids. They expect their pastor to have kids that are perfect. And the kids, aren't, when the kids are kids, and they may not even be bad kids, they're just doing things that kids do. And then the kids get really criticized because they're not the perfect kids and the pastors can get criticized and then the pastor will oftentimes put more pressure on their kids to be perfect and then the kids will rebel. But on a pedestal, so Yeah, it can happen that they're put up on a pedestal, they're, made, they're expected to be better. So sometimes it's the church's fault. Sometimes it's the, the pastor's fault. He just gets so busy taking care of the church that he doesn't do anything with his family. And then his family, usually the kids, will rebel like most kids. If they're not getting attention, negative attention is better than no attention. So they'll rebel just to get dad's attention. And sometimes it's just the rebellious nature of the child that says, I'm just not going to be obedient. So yes, you can have all three. And unfortunately, the majority probably fall with the church expecting too much of the kids. And oftentimes it's true, that, as you mentioned, of the pastor's wife. The pastor's wife is supposed to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. She's supposed to be perfect. She's supposed to be involved with everything as well as the pastor. And churches hire a pastor and a wife and they expect a two-for-one deal out of it. And that's not always the case. Most pastor's wives expect that they're going to be part of the ministry. I've seen the first time experience with that. Eventually the marriage is the marriage can hurt, the marriage can suffer, the, pa- the man, the man can often... So she, I mean, she just from a small Spanish-Mexican And the pastor oftentimes may leave the church because of it. Because he's just so fed up with his marriage being pressed. People in the church, again, the church expectation can hurt the pastor's family and his kids a lot of times. It's not necessarily that they mean to, it's just... 
here's the pastor, he's leading the church, he should obviously have the best family in there. And yes, the Bible does tell us that the pastor should have control over his family, but the kids are still going to be kids. The wife is still going to be a normal woman, just as every other woman in the church. She's going to have her strengths and weaknesses, and the pastor's going to have his strengths and weaknesses. Because a lot of times a pastor's put up on a pedestal, and when he doesn't quite live up to that perfect image, whatever that perfect image is for the person, then he's looked at and go, well, what kind of man is he? So it says, God says, as I live, says the Lord, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to make sure you understand that each person suffers for their own sin. And this is something that God is very strict on. When we stand before God, either as Christians at the Bema seat, we will stand on our own. It won't be, okay, I'm, I'm, my dad was really good, give me the blessings. No, it's going to be me standing in front of God and living on it. Or at the white throne judgment, each person is going to stand individually before God and say, what have you done with Jesus? So everybody will stand before God on their own. But then he goes in in verse 4. Like, this is going to, he's going to list 14 different good works in this very short period. And he's going to do it numbers of times in this chapter. So, or bad goods, depending on the case. It says, behold, all souls are mine. Okay? Everybody belongs to God. Whether they're a Christian or not does not matter. Their soul belongs to God because he is the creator of all souls. Okay? He is sovereign. He is king. He is ruler. Everything belongs to him. And that's the first thing to note on this. Everything belongs to him. Now, this does not mean all souls are going to heaven. Okay, this just means that they all belong to him. And he says, the soul of the father and the son is mine. The soul that sins shall die. All right. And as we've learned in our Romans memory verse, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Okay. All people born in this world are sinners and deserve death. All right, without Jesus Christ, they all, we all deserve death. And this is the first thing we've got to remember. <laughs> okay, and I was talking to a young man today at the, at the prison, and he was going, well, what about all these guys in, that are Christians that don't live the Christian life? I'm going, well, how do you know that they're not living the Christian life? Do you know everything there is to know about them? He goes, well, I know a lot about them. I go, no, do you know everything <laughs> that there is to know about them. You can't judge them. And, you know, because there are so many people out there that want to say that person's not a Christian because they don't do X, Y, and Z. The only problem is that person's probably looking at you and saying you're not a Christian because you're not doing A, B, and C. You know, we all are growing at a very different rate and in different ways. And this is something we have to be careful of. And I can tell you over and over again the people I've talked to that they will tell me, well, you know, they're not a Christian because they're not doing this. I'm going, well, that may be true, but are you doing, you know, are you doing this, this, and this? And I may list them, give them things that God has told me not to do. Not, not to criticize, but just to say, you know, you need to be careful. Now, if you look at somebody and you see no growth over in, their, in years in their life, you might be able to say, I, I'm wondering if this person's a Christian. If you see no growth. And that's part of what we're told to do is look, you know, look at somebody. But... I can't ever say that somebody's not a Christian because it's all a gift of grace. And I don't know. I don't know what happened to some of these people 20 years ago when they said their 
the sinner's prayer and maybe truly got saved and, and, and lifted up in, in the change. Uh, I, today when I was sitting in the library, uh, watching the library, I was reading Louis Zamperini's book, you know, and it very, he talked about how his anger and bitterness and his bad dreams from the war when he got saved disappeared immediately. He was changed. He was a new creation. And he said after... Well, she was going to leave him, and then she went to a Billy Graham crusade, got saved, and then talked him, and then talked him into going to two of them, actually, and uh, he got saved. Yeah, but but the idea was that he was totally changed overnight. Now, not everybody gets totally changed overnight, and don't get changed in every part of their life either. So we need to be careful of you know. I didn't know some of these people, you know, I know some of my family members who said they got saved way back before I was born. They don't live any kind of lifestyle, they're not showing it, but I can't judge and say they're absolutely not saved. I have my, some very strong questions on whether some of my family members are saved, but I can't look at them and say, well, there's absolutely no way you got saved because you're not showing any, because I don't know what happened on the day that they got saved. I know what happened to me and I know my reaction. And I will say that somebody who's gotten saved should be getting changed and being made more and more like God. And I can say there are people in this church that I look at and I say, I'm very sure that they're saved because I'm watching them become more and more like God with each passing day and doing more and more of what they're being taught and what they're learning. And you go, okay, that's a pretty good sign that this person's a Christian. Spiritual growth. And here God says, all these, all these are mine. Then he goes in verse 5, But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and has not eaten upon the mountains, neither has lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has come near a menstruous woman, and he has not oppressed the any, and has restored to the debtor his pledge, and has spoiled none by violence, have given his bread to the hungry, have covered the naked with his garment. He shall not give forth upon usury, neither has taken any increase of that which is withdrawn from his hand from iniquity, has educated, uh, executed true judgment between man and man. So this is this list that he's looking at. First he says, if a man be just. Now without Christ, it is very hard to be truly just. There are people who will do things that are good to people as long as it does something good for them. And this is where Christianity has its greatest twist on it. Because Christians are expected by God to be loving like the Father is loving. Not because I'm getting something in return for what I do. This is the first sign that you're learning to be spiritual. I'm doing something just because it is right to do. I love somebody just because God loves me and I'm going to choose to love them. And more often than not, why do most people convert family members? Is because people see a genuine love coming from their family member. A love they may not understand. Oftentimes don't understand it. I'm mean to you and you're still loving me. Going back to Zamperini, his wife was all set to leave him because of his anger and his and his issues with the, with the war. And he was a heavy drinker. Yeah. And he got saved. Uh, she got saved. And she came back and told him, I'm no longer filing for divorce. 
I'm praying for you because I, God loves you and so do I. Which, of course, angered him even more. <laughs> he was happy that she wasn't going to divorce him, but you know, all of a sudden she's you know, a new, uh, doing something totally different. But that love was what actually went, wins them over. And the love often is what wins the rest of the family members when they really truly see that love. When you don't criticize them where you normally would have criticized them, where you show love and kindness when you normally would not have because they've disappointed you and haven't given you what you want out of, out of their relationship. And here he's saying, they're just. And do that which is lawful and right. Do what God says. And then he's going to give all kinds of examples. He has not eaten on the mountains. Now, this kind of sounds kind of funny. You know, when you first read that, you're thinking, well, they can't have a picnic on the mountain. No, that's not what this is referring to. Because what have we said happens on the high places? Idol. idol worship. So he's saying you're not eating the sacrifices of the idols. He's not saying you can't go to Windy Point and have a picnic. <laughs> he says, but you can't go up there and worship on an idol and consume the, the sacrifice that you made to the idol. That's what he's saying here. Or he has lifted up his eyes into the idol, which literally means to lift up, to bear, to endure idols. All right? And then he says, neither has he defiled his neighbor's wife, no adultery. <laughs> neither has he come near to a menstruous woman. And if you remember in the law, there, there was no, you were, you, you, even a husband and wife were not to have sex during menstruation. And that's just a law that God has on it. He has not oppressed any. Okay, he, doesn't, he doesn't take advantage of, the, of others. He has restored the debtor his pledge. And, and we've talked about this. Jesus said, if you take the cloak in a pledge, you had to give the cloak back because that was their covering, the only covering they had at night. You couldn't take something away that they needed. So when you took a pledge, you were to give it back every night <laughs> and come back and get it the next morning. And uh, which made it kind of hard. And a lot of people didn't take pledges if they followed this law because it just wasn't worth it. Uh, he has not spoiled, uh, has spoiled none by violence. Has not, you know, so he hasn't abused people to take things. A lot of our movies and, and uh, drama shows have this idea where people do violence to, to people to take their property or, or whatnot. It would be the picture of Ahab wanting the vineyard that the man wouldn't sell him and Jezebel setting him up and having him, having him killed, you know, being, being accused of being a worshiper of idols and then having him stoned and then taking the property from them. Okay, so not, not doing things by violence. He has given bread to the hungry and he has covered the naked with the garment. In other words, taking care of the, the poor. He has not given forth upon usury, so he doesn't charge high interest. And he has not taken increase that has withdrawn his hand from the iniquity, but executes true judgment. So these are the things, very practical. He, he cares for the poor. He's taking care of them. He's not taking advantage of people. He's not worshiping idols. He's not eating their food. He's not enduring idols. Okay. Uh, and he walks in my statutes and kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord. Now, that does not mean that he's going to live on this world forever because of this. It just means he's going to have the blessings of God and he's going to go into eternity and live. And this is what's true. Does every single righteous person live a long life? The answer is no. Things still happen. Does every wicked person die young? No. We've seen many wicked people who lived to old age. 
Now, do most do or many wicked people die at a younger age? Oftentimes it is true that they're going to die because of the activities they're doing, whether it's abusing their body with alcohol and drugs and, and getting sick and dying at a younger age than they should have, or literally being killed by somebody else who's meaner and, and badder than they are, or with the police or whatever else. And do most righteous people live a longer life because they've treated their body in a better way? Yes, many and most do. But it is not an absolute guarantee that just because you do either side, you're either going to die young or die, die late. But it is a general truth that it probably is going to cause you problems. And for people who have abused their body with alcohol and drugs, and even if they die in their 50s or 60s because of cirrhosis and all of that, how much longer would they have lived if they had not abused their bodies? We don't know, but it's quite likely that if their liver hadn't given out at age 50, they might have lived to be 60 or 70. So God says there is a blessing. There is a blessing. And regardless, the one who's righteous is going to live forever because they've turned their life to God. And verse 10, if he beget a son that is a robber and a shedder of blood and, that, and does the like of any one of these things, and that does not any of these duties, but even that eats upon the mountain and defiles his neighbor's wife, has oppressed the poor and needy, is spoiled by violence, has not restored his pledge, has, has lifted up his eyes to the idols, has committed abominations, hath given a forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live, for he hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die, and his blood shall be upon him. So again, if this righteous man gives birth to a son who is doing all the wrong things, the son is going to die, and quite often, unfortunately, dies before the father. Again, not always, but often. And if nothing else, he's going to bring heartbreak to his parents because of his disobedience or her disobedience. And it says that his blood will be upon him. When he goes into hell, it has been his choice. And this is why it is very popular for you to hear in Christian circles, you know, God does not send anybody to hell. They get what they have chosen. And it's just simple. We need to understand that because a lot of times when you're witnessing to people, they'll go, well, why does God send people to hell? Well, he doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose that that's what they want. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject doing things God's way, and they will get what they choose. Now, they don't like the answer when you're witnessing to people, but that really is the only answer. We get what we have chosen. I either choose God or I reject God. There's only those two choices. There's no gray area in between. And a lot of the world wants to have a gray area. Well, it's not right that there's only choosing God or not choosing you know, God. What about all the other religions? Well, that's choosing against God. All right? There's a hundred or thousands of ways to not choose God, but there's only one way to choose God. And this is something that Christians get accused of all the time, that we see the world in black and white. And I truly and fully accept that. I see the world in black and white. I do things God's way or not God's way. And all those places that they'll put as shades of gray, to me, they're black. They're wrong, period. God said, this is the way you do it. Any other way is wrong. And the world doesn't like that. The world doesn't like a black and white world. They like this whole shades of gray. Well, 
And Christians oftentimes fall into this as well. How close can I get to the sin without crossing over the sin? And this is a scary thing because it's really the wrong question for us. Our question really should be, God, help me stay as far away from that sin as possible. And we'll hear it in especially our teenagers. Where is the line for sex? You know, you know, and they'll, they'll draw all kinds of lines because you know, as long as you don't say there's penetration, there's no sex. You know, they'll have oral sex. They'll have all these other things that, you know, and playing around with sex. And they'll go, well, I didn't commit sex. Well, I'm sorry. You probably crossed some lines that God said don't cross. And the idea is stay as far away from these things. How close can I get to not telling the truth before I'm lying? Well, we've covered that. In Deuteronomy and, and Numbers, it says that if we don't tell the whole truth and everything we know about it, we've lied. Plain and simple. And yet, we'll play the game of the world. Okay, how, how much can I tell without, without fully telling it and still be telling the truth? And we do this in just about every other area of our life. Christians are famous for gossiping. How do most Christians gossip? We need to pray for so-and-so because... And then they start gossiping and telling you everything you don't need to know about why you need to pray for that person. And it's, it's crouched in this really righteous, you know, I'm going to tell you everything they've done wrong so you can pray for them. But we're really giving an opportunity to gossip. And that's crossing the line again. We need to be able to have very high standards to say, I am not going to cross this line. Not judging people is something that's very hard to stay away from sometimes, especially if you're really caring about them. And all of a sudden you're seeing them do what you think is wrong and you know you can get very judgmental of somebody with a heart of love thinking I'm caring for them and yet you're judging them. And we need to be very careful about this. If we have that problem, then we need to be able to pray to God and say, God, I need your help. Help me not cross this line. And very much be careful about this. We always want to draw these little lines. How close can I get to? How many shades of gray can I get into before the gray becomes black and I've crossed the line? And we all play this game. I've played this game. I still play the game probably in some areas of my life without realizing it. But we have to get in and say, this is what God says. It's black or white. And the world does not like black and white. They like the shades of gray. You know, that I can do certain things and it's not, not wrong because... Because I'm more than 50% more than on the good side, so I'm okay. Why? Because they still see that God somehow, or believe that God grades on a curve. You know, if I'm more good than bad, God's going to be okay with me. No. The standard is perfection. And we need to fully understand that that's his, that's his standard as we live. The good news for us is, for by grace are we saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our works do not impress God, period. They don't impress him because all of our works are filthy rags. And he just looks at it and says, it's all by grace. And the more we realize it's all by grace, the more we'll depend on him and the more we will let him crucify our flesh, he will indwell us and then he will work out of us. And those works are him working out of us and they are what impresses him, what he allows us to do through him. And this is very important for us. Anything I'm doing is purely by grace. If I'm being a good person, it is by grace. Because my flesh does not want to be good. Each one of our flesh does not want to be good. 
So if we're doing good, righteous, godly living, it is not us that does it. It's God living through us. Anything else is me trying to do it, and God looks at it and says, well, that's pretty stinky flesh. Because why are we doing good? Because we're going to be a Pharisee. God, hey, people, look at me. Look at all the things I'm doing right. And then I'm going to judge others. Well, you're just not, here's my standard of stuff. You're not living up to my standards. You know, you're bad. <laughs> and because I'm doing so much better than you, I'm, I'm more righteous. And that was the individual's problem that I was talking to today. He was setting himself up as the standard of righteousness because of all the things God had changed him. And he's a good Christian. He's not, you know, I believe he's a Christian, he's, but he's lifting himself up in the things that he has changed and not trying to be gracious to others. And we need that graciousness. Does that mean we accept their sin? No. We're still going to call what, you know, sin a sin, but we do it lovingly. We do it kindly. And we're not judging them for their sin. We're just saying, what you're doing is not right. It is not right according to Scripture. And we let them stand or fall before God. The best thing about Christianity is that everybody stands or falls before God. Me and everybody I know stands before God in their own place with God. And God will judge them. For some people, they have the, you know, Jesus talked about a person being given one talent, three talents, five talents. You know, some people are given a lot of talents and they're very faithful with it and they get a lot more talents. Some people are given very few talents and don't use them. Some people have very few talents and they use that one or two talents to their full ability and God blesses them for their use of it. Others get talents and don't use them. And they'll be answering to God for not using what God has given them. But I'm not their judge. I'm not their judge to say, you know, you're, you're messing up. If you only have one talent and you're using it to the best of your ability, praise God. Praise God because you're using it faithfully. You're going to be better rewarded than the person who had five talents and used three of them. Because they didn't use all of their talents. They weren't using everything that they were supposed to use. That one talent person is going to be looked at by God and say, just as the widows might. She gave more than all the people who gave out of their abundance. Why? Because she gave all. She gave all that she had and had nothing left when she got done giving. And Jesus said, she gave more than all of them because she gave out of her poverty. Whereas those rich people, they put lots of money in, but it didn't hurt them. And we need to be aware of that. Sometimes people with very few talents are going to get more blessing in heaven. Verse 14, now lo, if he beget a son and sees, oh, no, this is now the grandson of the first guy, so we're, we're now three generations in. He begets a son and sees all of his father's sins, which he has done, and considers and does not such like, okay, so this new son is saying, okay, my father's a terrible man, I'm not going to be like him. He that eats not upon the mountains, neither is lift, lifted up his idols, <laughs> eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither oppressed any, nor hath withdrawn the, withholding the pledge, neither is he spoiled by violence, but have given the bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with the garment, that take, hath taken off the hand taken off his hand from the poor and hath not received usury nor increase nor has executed by my judgments has walked in my statutes he shall not die for the iniquity of his father he shall surely live so again he's setting up all the different things we can think of the first father was totally righteous he's not he's not going to be judged because of his uh, he has a son who's totally unrighteous his son will bear it, not the father. And then if that man has a son, that son is not going to bear the sins of his father 
if he chooses to follow. And again, we talked about many times, unfortunately, we follow after our fathers. And it is very much the case, unless we break the cycle through Jesus, through God, we can break the cycle. And because in my case, I look at it, when I got saved, I made some decisions for God. Now, I come from a long line of alcoholics, but God kept me away from that. And then my dad got saved and he gave up alcohol during the time when I would have really been tempted to get into it. But I'd already decided I was going to follow God, and so I don't think I would have gotten into that. Who knows? God prevented that decision from having to be made. But my grandfather was an alcoholic, and my great-grandfather was. I mean, we had a long line of alcoholics in the family, and then the chain was broken by coming to Christ. And none of my kids at this point have had to deal with alcohol as an issue. And hopefully none of them will choose to go that route. But again, it's still their choice, their decisions to make. And God is saying that we will do it. Verse 18, and as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, even he shall die in his iniquity. Which means dying in his iniquity means that he will be cast into hell. And this is something that we need to keep in memory. When we come to Christ, we are put in Christ, our flesh is crucified, God sees us in the righteousness of Christ. This is the good news of salvation. When we come to Christ, we are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I love that part. All things are become new. We don't always live in the all things have become new. Oftentimes we will choose to live in the old stinking dead flesh that has been crucified and not be satisfied with it. But it's not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be more than conquerors. We're not supposed to be living in the sin that we, that we want to live in because that flesh is supposed to be crucified. And we're supposed to be more than conquerors. We, have, we are victorious and then more than victorious. We are to be really super victorious over sin. And unfortunately, it's not always true. But the good news is the more we walk with God, the more we surrender to him, the more victorious we get. And hopefully you're starting to see that as you're growing in Christ. The things that used to beset you and drive you crazy no longer are even a question anymore of doing. Other things, you're always aware that you're sinning. You know, have you ever done anything that you used to enjoy and all of a sudden you don't even enjoy doing it anymore even though you may still do it? Yeah, and it just, you're just aware now that you're guilty? Before you didn't even have that guilty guilt, you just did it. And now when you do it, you're aware that it's wrong there's that twinge in the, in the mind saying you really shouldn't be doing this and that gets stronger and stronger as you go on with Christ and to a point where all of a sudden the desire even starts disappearing as long as you go that direction. God changes who we are and it starts out with just that conviction of sin. I really shouldn't be doing this. Well, sometimes we still do it, <laughs> but we know we're not supposed to. And then eventually we start not even doing it very often, and then we stop doing it all together. And this has been what's happened in my life. God will say, I really want you to stop doing this. And sometimes it's not even a very sinful thing or not even a sinful thing at all. But God just says, there's other things you can be doing with your time. 
And this is what happens with me, with, with me in sports. I used to love just sitting down, vegetating, watching sports. Now, was watching sports wrong? No. But when you spent 16 hours a day, a week, you know, watching sports, when you could have been spending time with God, you might be crossing that line between, between the two. And that's basically what God said. Do you, do you want to keep spending six hours a day doing this, or do you want to spend some time with me? And my answer was, finally, <laughs> finally, <laughs> I think I'll spend more time with you. And my desire for watching sports dwindled to practically nothing. Does that mean I never watch any sports? No, I watch sports every once in a while. But it's not that addictive long-term. I really pr can't sit down and watch a full football game anymore. Because all I think of is three hours. What can I be doing in three hours? Verse 19 says, Yet you say, so he's going back to what the people say, Why doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept my statutes, and hath not done them, he shall surely live. So they're basically saying, you know, well, why doesn't, why doesn't the Son pay? This is the way the world thinks, you know, everybody else should pay. And we've, we've either done it ourselves or we've heard many people say it, you know, oh, they should pay. Why? And this gets into the reputation a lot of times that people have when the town drunk will have children and people will expect that his children are going to be, they're going to suffer because they expect his children to be bad just because he is bad. Uh, and I, we talked about the flip side of that with a pastor. Everybody expects his children to be good because the pastor has made a decision to follow God. And there's expectations put on people. Now, unfortunately, expectations usually can end up being self-fulfilling, too, because you start treating people in certain ways. And if you treat somebody poorly just because you expect them to be bad, eventually they probably will start doing what you expect. And there's been some studies where people, or like teachers have been told, this, this, these, stu these two of these students have been tested and they're really super smart. And what ends up happening? Those three students do better than, they're just randomly selected, but they do better. Why? Because the teacher has some expectation. And if they don't live up to what she was told or he was told they were, they will work a little harder with that student because they're going to feel like they were the failure for not getting this student to live up to their standard. And this is true. When we treat people in a certain way, we usually get what we expect. When I was a manager, there were times when I would hire somebody and I would think, this person is really going to be a good worker. Usually when I thought that, that person turned out to be a pretty good worker. Why? Probably because self, uh, subconsciously I put a little more effort into training them and, and correcting them if I didn't see what I expected. Some I thought, well, this is just a fill-in. And what did I normally get from that? just to fill in, somebody to fill the space, doing just enough, just enough to stay employed. Again, our expectations. What are our expectations of people will usually be come to fruition. And we want to be very careful of that. And verse 20 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So, again, he's reiterating, verse 21, But if the wicked shall turn from his sin that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. So the, right, the unrighteous person who turns to God and starts following after God will have their life in it. All his transgressions, transgressions that he has committed they shall not be mentioned unto him in his righteousness, 
and he shall, and he hath done, that he hath done, and he shall live. I love this. When you come to God, everything that you've done wrong is covered. We've got to keep this in mind. How many times do we bring up the transgressions of a fellow brother or sister in Christ? You know, we need to be so careful about that. Because God has put them under the blood. He has forgotten them. He has put, them, he put on the righteousness of Christ. And yet we want to know them after the flesh and everything they've done wrong and try to hold them accountable for their bad behavior. And it is important that we lift up and edify. We edify one another. We, we look and we see people the way they are seen by God. Is that an easy thing to do sometimes? Absolutely not. Sometimes it's very hard to do. Especially if somebody's not living a very righteous life in the process and it's hard to pick out those things that are good sometimes. But we really need to be training ourselves to look at what are they doing right? What am I doing right? You know, because I can get hard on myself. And I know myself better than anybody else. I know when I do wrong and and my motives behind what I did, did wrong. I can be very hard on myself and I need to be able to see myself after the way Christ sees me and God sees me. And very important... Verse 23, have I any pleasure at all in the wicked, that, at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways and live. So he says, I don't have this desire for them to die. God does not take pleasure in sending people to hell. He will give them what they want, but it will sadden him when he does. And his righteousness and his holiness will say they're going to get what they deserve, but he doesn't take pleasure necessarily in that punishment. Same thing I've said when parents punish their kids. The reason for punishing our kids is not so that we can inflict pain on them. It better not be. That's not the right reason for discipline. The discipline, though, is to inflict enough pain that they don't want to do wrong again. And that's the important thing about discipline. Discipline has to be hard enough that when somebody thinks about doing it again, they go, I don't think the punishment was worth the little bit of pleasure that I had. If, you're puni- if, you're, if they're still thinking the punishment doesn't, isn't worse, then the punishment has to increase. And this is what God says. I'm not taking pleasure in their destruction. It really does bring a different understanding. When God punishes us, we understand that his purpose is to keep us from doing wrong in the future. And that's what discipline is really all about, is to the pain of the discipline must be enough so that when I compare it to what I want to do, then I go, no, I don't want to do it. It's not worth it. Verse 24, but when the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All of the righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned in, in his trespass that he has trespassed and in his sin that he sins and in them shall he die. So in other words, the righteous, if they're not in Christ, are going to die as in their sins. And this takes us back to the Pharisees. Too many people... And even in the Christian world, are Pharisees. They think I'm special because I'm doing good things. And they're doing good works in their flesh. And I've seen it over and over again where the people will compare everybody to them. And the, the problem is, who, do we, who should we be comparing ourselves? If we want to compare ourselves, we compare ourselves against God and his standards. You know, for some reason, that attitude seems to be prevalent in just about every human being. Oh, Mm-hmm. Say, well, they did it well, I did it 
I, I did it too, so it must be okay, or I'm better than so many people. Yeah. I don't do that, so I'm righteous, and they're not doing it, so they're wrong, and I'm more righteous. And we've got to be careful because the problem is, and I've said this the very first part of this message, is that I'm doing X, Y, and Z. They're doing A, B, and C. I'm not being dealt with in A, B, and C, and I'm sinning as far as they're concerned. And we've got to be careful because we're comparing one another. Then, and also the problem is how many of us ever compare ourselves to somebody who's better than us? Now, uh, you're not going to look at, well, that guy's really good. I don't want to look at him. Uh, I'm better than those guys over there. <laughs> Uh, you know, and we need to be looking at God's standard because if we look at God's standard, we're going to be reminded that it's all by grace. Because if I look at my, if I start comparing myself to God, I'm going to see how far off I really am. And then I'm going to be pushed down to it's all by grace and then I can start dealing with grace and love to other people because I'm not thinking I'm special because it's all grace. And it makes it easier for me to deal with other people's sins. Again, we're not going to try to say that what they're doing is right. You know, if they're sinning, they're sinning. But we're also not going to say, well, I'm better than them because I don't commit that sin. Because I can guarantee I have plenty of sins in my life that are besetting me. People may or may not know some of my sins, but I have sins that beset me and that I deal with. And I was witnessing to one young man one time, and he goes, well, it's easy for you. You've got your whole life put together. And I'm going, oh, if you only knew... If you only knew, I may not be dealing with the same sins you're dealing with, but I am dealing with so many other sins that are harder to get rid of than what, what you're thinking you have to get rid of, and you don't have to be getting rid of those. God will take them away from you. you know, but you know, that's the way the world looks at us sometimes as Christians. Well, I can't be like you, especially if you're walking close to God. Well, I can't, I can't give up. You know, and you know, I can't give up. And they'll start naming all kinds of things they can't give up. And my answer is almost always the same. Well, who's asking you to give up anything? Well, isn't that what Christians do? I go, you probably will give things up, but you will want to give things up when it's time to give them up. Because God will put it on your heart to give it up. All he wants you to do is come to him. And we've got to keep this in mind. We want to keep the gospel message simple. The gospel message is simple. You are a sinner. You deserve hell. Christ died for you. Once he's indwelling us, then we can be, they will change. Once the Holy Spirit indwells them, they will change. Because that is what God does. But nobody expects them to change. And they've got to understand that they're not expected to change just because. They're going to change because they're going to want to change. God's going to come into their life. He's going to make them a new creation. He's going to indwell them. And they are going to want to change what they do. And it's fun. It's fun watching new Christians start giving things up, when they, especially when, when they were saying there's no way they could give it up, and all of a sudden they're not doing the things that they said they couldn't give up. And it's not because I'm sitting there telling them you've got to give this up. It's not even anything else. It's just they're getting under that conviction. They're getting under conviction in certain areas of their life, and God is making those changes. God changes us little by little, line by line, precept upon precept, and he keeps very slowly changing, our, changing us. And in some places, he changes us very quickly. I really truly believe that when somebody becomes a Christian, there's at least one area of their life, at least one, that changes drastically at the moment of salvation. I know it was true for me, and it's been true for almost everybody that I've led to the Lord that I've known, 
that at least one area of their life very quickly changes. Sometimes it's many areas. But usually at least one has changed. For me, it was a temper that was taken virtually completely away. And I went from being a very angry young man to one who could handle most things. I didn't mean I totally didn't get angry, but I didn't get anywhere close to angry so easily. It was a very dramatic change. People noticed it. And you know, all of us have some area that people should be able to say, well, yeah, you really changed when you became a Christian. The weight of the world lifts off us. I love seeing people who get saved. You, know, the, you can just see the weight coming off of them as, as a sin debt comes off and they get indwelled by Christ. And there's that change in their countenance, the change in the way they look. And that is one thing that is very frequently mentioned. The weight of the world came off of me. I felt, I felt free for the first time. And we need that freedom. We need to know that we are free because we really are set free. Our sin has been crucified. Our flesh has been crucified. God dwells in us. He fills that empty spot, and there's a big change in our life. And very important for us to see, life comes from this event of being saved. We become alive no longer dead in, in spirit, no longer empty, because we are filled with the one thing that can fill that hole. As Pascal said, we all have a God-shaped hole in our life. And a God-shaped hole can be filled with nothing but God because he's the only being big enough to fill that hole. And we try in our flesh to fill it up with all kinds of stuff. You know, whether it be... Uh, some sin or even just the pride or accomplishments. You know, we can do things that are supposedly good and none of that stuff is going to fill the hole in our life that only God can fill. And when we get saved, he steps in and all of a sudden there's fulfillment because that hole is filled. And sometimes he has to dig out all the garbage, throw it away and fill that hole himself, but, but he fills that hole. Doesn't mean we're perfect, just means that he fills the, the greatest need of our heart, and we will be able to move forward from there. Now, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, that you judge each one of us for what we've done, not for what others have done to us or around us. And, Lord, that we are accountable for what we do. We can't blame others. We can't hide behind the sins of our fathers or, or others around us. We can't sin, hide behind the environment. We are responsible for our actions. Lord, and because we are sinners, we will sin. And Lord, we just thank you that you came and died upon the cross for us so that we could be able to accept that gift and go to heaven. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.